Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And a good Sunday morning to you. Here we are again, the uh, bit of an earlier edition of Healthy Matters, certainly inviting uh, our callers and our texters to join in on the conversation. Good morning to you, Dr. Hilden. Good morning, Danny. Have you had a good week? I had a very good week and uh, was uh, outside like a lot of folks yesterday enjoying the beautiful weather. I, I, was, I was wondering if you were out running or walking yourself. Well, um, my wife, Julie, and I have got, we've got into this habit um, where, as have so many, of going for a daily walk. And I live in the south part of the city of Minneapolis, and, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we're taking our walk every day. And it's come to be quite the tradition that I hope we continue to do even after this pandemic's over. Now, you only have about Absolutely. four things you can actually do. You can go for a walk. You can watch TV. <laughs> and so we're doing the walk uh, every day, and we're just grateful. We wake up every day. We're feeling healthy. And so, you know, and, and you're right, Danny. Wasn't it just gorgeous yesterday? And I, I heard I heard a rumor that it's going to be beautiful, out, at least up here in, in Minnesota this coming week as well. Yes, it is. Uh, a little cooler today, a high of 50, and then uh, 59 tomorrow. So after a brief uh, cool down today, but still, it looks like a lot of sunshine. So get out there if you can. Keep your distance, of course, and uh, give us a call or send us a text message if you have any kind of a, a general health question. Now, we talk about the, the COVID-19 all the time, and, and as, as we should. Uh, but let's uh, let's invite, what do you say, doctor, invite our listeners, to, if they have any other general health questions, to ask those as well, right? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, I pretty much live and breathe this coronavirus every day, you know, whether I'm doing uh, administrative work, which I do a considerable amount of. I've become pretty much a virtual meeting expert. So we do a lot of that. But I also I'm seeing patients, including I'm seeing patients that have this virus. But but one of the interesting things is, is that our emergency department at Hennepin is one of the busiest in well, in, in the in the region, for sure. And it's the largest emergency department in the state of Minnesota, and they're seeing fewer patients for other things. And it's not that your heart disease stopped and your and your other acute problems stopped, um, but people are rightfully nervous, and so they're staying home as we've been telling them to. But that doesn't mean that we're not here for people if your other problems are flaring up. So People should know that although we do recognize you need to stay home for as much as you can, if you are ill or you're having chest pain, 
you know, that might be your heart or something, you should still go to the emergency department. So I'm happy to talk about whatever is on people's minds uh, this morning. Very good. And the number, the same number applies to either the phone call or the text, as usual, 651-989-9226, 651-989-9226. Call in for Dr. Hilden or send him a text as well. Tell you what, we already have callers, uh, Dr. Hilden. Let's, I think Pat in Minneapolis has been waiting there. Pat, the doctor is listening. Yes. Hello. Hi, Go Pat. Ahead, Pat. Hi. Um, well, we got to get on the COVID. I'm sorry. Um, I, uh, I'm a diabetic, and I have never had this happen before. But uh, last week, I woke up in the middle of the night, and my blood sugar was 40. And I know that's dangerous. And I honestly was too afraid to go to the emergency room. And so I did the orange juice, 15 minutes, orange juice, 50 minutes, and it it came up to about 60, and eventually through the day it came up. And uh, was I wrong to not go to the emergency room? Pat, great great questions, Pat. Um, they really are. And it, it all depends. 40 is too low of a blood sugar, but you can instantly correct it. And it sounds like you did precisely what you should have done. And that would be drink some orange juice or for anything, anything with carbohydrates or sugars in it. You could have had a, a soda pop as long as it wasn't diet or orange juice or uh, candy bar, even anything um, to get your sugars back up. And you did the right thing. Um, the question, so and and all's well that ends well is if it is sort of the moral of that story. However, if this becomes an ongoing issue for you, there is something wrong. I'm more concerned about why did it drop to 40 in the first place. Uh, um, blood sugars fluctuate wildly throughout the day, even in non-diabetics. It's what your body is doing. It's handling the the load of of uh, of carbohydrates that we eat and they go up and down, but they never should go as low as 40 because uh, it doesn't get enough nutrients to your brain and the like, and it can be damaging in the long term. So I would try to figure out why are if was it because you were feeling ill for some reason? Uh, was it because you got an extra dose of your medicines? If you're on insulin, that will drop it too low. I would look into that a little bit and it might be worthwhile, Pat, to call your doctor, whoever that is, and just say, hey, should we have a visit? You ought to know that during this pandemic, most clinics, at least at the big healthcare systems, including our own in Hennepin, we're doing most of our visits either by phone or by video. It's one of the things we've learned about during this COVID pandemic is that a video visit is so good for so many people. Or even a phone visit, you can talk to your doctor or look at your doctor, you can get advice, you can get prescriptions, and, and maybe just have a video or a phone visit with your doctor to try to figure out what your situation was. If you do have low blood sugars in the future, and they and and they remain low. You should go in and and have that evaluated by a, even in an emergency department. But you did the right thing, Pat. You really did. It's one of those examples of should I go in? Should I not? There is a risk to going in um, because of this COVID thing. But the risk of low blood sugars, if you weren't able to get them up, then I would recommend you you go in if your blood sugars stay too low. Very good. Thank you, Pat. 
Uh, Susan will be next. We're going to take a quick break here, Doctor. Let me invite again our listeners to join in on the conversation. Call us or text us, 651-989-9226. In the Twin Cities right now, we have a current uh, CCO temperature reading, 39 degrees skies are fair. We're going to hit 50 for a high today and maybe 59 by tomorrow. Stay with us here. Healthy Matters continues on News Talk 830 WCCO. And good morning. Welcome back to Healthy Matters. Our earlier version continues. If you have any kind of a health question, it doesn't have to be about the COVID-19 virus. Any general health questions, it's an open line show like we like to do from time to time. Call Dr. Hilden or send him a text. Same number applies, 651-989-9226. Dr. Hilden, let's go to the phones. We promised Susan that she would be next. Susan in Anoka, go ahead, please. My question is about my homemade cotton mask. I wear it whenever I go out of my apartment, and when I come home, whether I've been just in the building or been outside, I store it uh, by hooking it on uh, a hook out on my deck so it is out in the fresh air and sunshine and so on. And I'm wondering if this is a good way to take care of it and keep it effective and uh, or if there, I should be washing it or doing something else. Great question, Susan, and good good idea. I think also to be wearing it. We're all we're all in a new fashion statement era with our masks. As for um, how you should store it, I I'm not an expert in all this, and we're all learning as we go. But what you are doing sounds really good to me. I think putting it outside and hanging it on a hook, um, it accomplishes a few things. One, you're not bringing it into your house to to get all over everything else in your house. Um, I had an interesting kind of you know anecdote from work. I have a number of masks. I have three. I have a homemade mask that I wear, or just a cotton one, around the hospital when I'm not seeing patients, because that's what we're recommending. I have a surgical mask when I'm seeing patients, just a regular surgical mask. I've been using the same one for three weeks. And then I do have one N95 mask that I keep in a box, in a, in a bag, and I wear that when I have the highest risk patients, and I've that one for three weeks. And so at one time, I put my cotton mask on my desk, and one of my colleagues was appalled. They said, why are you putting that mask on your desk? You're, it's going to get it all over, and they're pro- nobody really knows. So I... So there is probably something to be said for not taking your mask and just setting it on your kitchen table because you could, you know, the, the, the virus could live in there. So I would continue to do what you're doing. I think hanging it from a hook is great. I don't think it has to be outside. I think you're okay putting it just somewhere in your house, but I love the hanging it on your hook thing. The virus isn't going to jump off the mask and get on other things, but if you were to take take your face mask and shake it, for instance, you would be shedding the virus off of your mask. So gently hanging it on a hook, to me, sounds like a great idea. Anything you launder, the virus is probably killed doing that. So if you choose to launder it every now and then, that would certainly get rid of anything that is on that mask. You know what I do, and I may do nothing, but at least (laughs) I sleep better. Uh, When I'm driving, uh, when I go to the grocery store once in a while, of course, I have a mask. And it's a surgical-type mask, and I put it on my dash in the sunshine, thinking maybe the UV rays will keep it clean. What do you think of Denny, that? I think you're onto something there, too, Denny. Most of us have, you know, this is like what we talk about at lunch. Well, not even just at lunch, at the hospital. We talk about this kind of stuff all day long. What about UV light? This is an effective way to kill the virus. It's just not known, like, what wavelength of light is 
you know, what's going to work and what's not. It is true that many healthcare systems are sanitizing masks. They're not sterilizing. You can never sterilize a cotton or a cloth product, but you can sanitize it under UV light. And, and even the mask manufacturers are starting to, well, I won't say embrace that, but they're starting to acknowledge that it might work. And it, and so UV light does work. It's not clear to at least to me, uh, what is the proper way to do it? Here's another funny anecdote from work. Somebody showed up with those little, um, UV light boxes that that manicurists use, and you're 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 gonna laugh at this one. But somebody brought me one in my office. My own personal office is a manicure light, and I don't even know what to do with the thing. So you put your apparently you put your fingernails under it to dry your fingernail polish or something. People who do this kind of thing would know this. But we're putting masks under there. We're putting our cell phones under the UV light for a few minutes. I don't know if it's doing anything, but it's not going to hurt. So hanging your mask in the sunlight isn't going to hurt, and it certainly might help. Okay, it's kind of it, it's almost comical what we're doing. The other the other thing is, um, um, we need homemade masks. If I could use this moment, sure. our hospital Hennepin Healthcare still needs homemade masks. We're using these more than you might know. If you're making a mask and donating it, it is being put to good use. So when a lot of our personnel can't use the medical grade masks because we don't have quite enough for everybody. So the homemade masks are being worn around the hospital for people who aren't seeing patients. So if you have a way to don't make and donate masks, I got a website for you, hennepinhealthcare.org. And, and if you put a slash homemade masks after it, it'll take you right to the place. But even if you don't put that slash on it, just hennepinhealthcare.org. And, and dig around on there, you'll find where you can donate um, homemade masks. I'm sure this question pops up a lot. Why can't, this is a text message, why can't COVID-19 have a shot just like the flu injecting dead virus to give some immunity? I presume that, that someday is, maybe we hope to have it. Exactly, Denny. That is, uh, that's uh, one of the top few questions. That person is describing a vaccine. And we're going to have that. It's just that the problem is this is a new virus that didn't exist until several months ago, until November, December. And so no human body on planet Earth has ever seen it before. And so there's no immunity. So scientists are working around the clock, I think quite literally around the clock, to test vaccines. And the science is they know how to do this. But you can't just do it instantly because you have to get volunteers. You have to inject it. You have to, first of all, make sure you're not causing them any harm, the volunteers. So the first phase of any vaccine trial are safety. You can't go injecting something into whole huge portions of the population if it's going to hurt them. So they're doing safety trials. Then they move on to efficacy trials, which means does the vaccine work? Does it do what it's supposed to? Well, this all, and then the third stage is the manufacturing. They have to make zillions of doses. This all takes time. It's going to work. I'm pretty confident this vaccine doesn't seem to be mutating as quickly as, say, other, vac other viruses. So it could be, and I'm just speculating, but it could be that your vaccine might give you a little longer lasting immunity. The flu vaccine only gives you one year's worth of protection. So this could be longer. But again, I'm just speculating. And we're not going to see that for widespread use in this year. It'll be 2021. It might be late 2021. It could be a while yet. But that is the solution long term. Texter, in fact, you touched on this a bit ago, doctor. Uh, what is the status on elective surgery? 
we are ramping up our discussions about that. Currently, no one's doing any, appropriately so, but that's been for the last several weeks. We are now starting to talk about which surgeries can we resume because there comes, you know, we do everything on a risk-benefit ratio. Is the risk too high for the benefit you're going to receive or is the benefit you're going to receive more important than the risk you're going to take. At the be- for some things, the, the risk is too high. If it's just truly an elective procedure that isn't going to affect your health, you should wait. You should wait six months. You should wait a year. You should just wait. You know, you might say some hernias might be in that area or taking some benign lump out of your arm. That could wait. But then there's the, the, the emergency cases. Those have to be done right away. We do those no matter what. But there's this big middle group of people. You need this surgery. You need this procedure. You can't wait forever. And so it's getting to the point where we're going to start looking at those. And I know our hospital is looking at that. I would guess all hospitals are looking at that. In, in, the, in the next month, you know, what procedures can we begin doing again because they can't wait any longer? In fact, the risk of waiting is going to be too high. You might think of people with certain tumors and are in that category and and other things like mammograms when can we start doing those again and i think we're starting to think about all those you know right in the coming weeks so we'll look for more on that it's time to begin to start thinking about what we can what elective things we can do again very good we have exactly 60 seconds to go maybe you could repeat that website again as far as the face masks are concerned and uh, and then we'll uh, remind our listeners we have another hour of the show to go Absolutely. We have, I have two websites for you. I do a little diary on my blog. It is a few paragraphs long, nothing big. I'm just, and I barely edit the thing. I'm, I'm writing my comments of what it's like practicing medicine in the middle of a pandemic. That is at myhealthymatters.org. It's the name of the show, but put the word my in front of it, myhealthymatters.org. Um, we have a lot of people checking into that, so I want to repeat that, myhealthymatters.org. Um, and then if you want to donate masks or you want to donate money, um, we have raised um, some good money that is going to good uses for our hospital. The website for that is hennepinhealthcare.org. So two things good. to go to, hennepinhealthcare.org for the donations. We'll mention that again next hour. Stay tuned next. We do have another hour of the show here on News Talk 830 WCCO. And again, good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Healthy Matters, uh, our extended version. If you happen to have any kind of a general health question, could be about the virus, could be about any other health issue, about you or someone you care about, call us or text us. Good morning again, Dr. Hilden. It looks like another beautiful day. Now, are, are you, uh, I know for folks that know you, know you're a runner, uh, are you doing that these days, or are you kind of shying away from that, given the situation? Well, good morning, Denny. Uh, it all depends on whether uh, it, it's what should I be doing, and what do I, and what am I actually doing? <laughs> I have, it's kind of funny, and this is not what I'm recommending to everybody. I, I've fallen off on my running just because, and just exercising in general. Um, just because it just, I don't know, we're in such a new kind of routine here, and I'm, and I, I have a great. Uh, um, desire to get back into exercise more. So I'm just, you know, I'm running a couple days a week now and I'm going a couple of miles, but that's not what I used to. I used to be much more active than that. It brings up a, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. We we talk about the COVID-19. Those of you who went off to college and picked up the freshman 15, and I don't mean COVID in terms of the, I mean, 19 pounds. Oh, <laughs> yes. 
everybody's saying we should all wear face masks at home, uh, not to, you know, inside our own house to keep us from eating so much. So I, I don't think my uh, my exercise regimens everything it ought to be uh, true confessions there, Denny. Welcome to the club. I think a lot of us are in that same boat. If you have uh, any kind of a question, if you want to send a text, that's fine, or, or call the doctor. Same number applies, 651-989-9226. We do have a bunch of text messages, certainly welcoming your phone calls as well. Here's one that's uh, kind of related uh, to the virus question. It says, hello, doctor. I was uh, I was always wondering what leprosy was. I looked it up. Notice you could get it from droplets into your nasal cavity or through your eyes. It's now called, he or she says, Hansen's disease, but it also can be transmitted in some cases by animals. Has anyone looked into this for a treatment since uh, it's treated now almost 100% effective? Leprosy. Yeah, um, it's still out there. Uh, those of you who are you know, good on your biblical history and the like will know that you know, they always talked about lepers. Uh, um, and they were ostracized because no one knew how you got leprosy. And um, it is still uh, an illness. It's called Hansen's disease in many parts of the world. Um, I assume there's some guy named Hansen or some woman named Hansen, probably a man. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it is caused by a different bacterium. And so it isn't spread the same way as coronavirus or doesn't have the same spread patterns. But if somebody were to show up at our hospital with leprosy, we would put them in an isolation room just like we do now. Um, but we would we would have anti, antimicrobial medications to treat and it would be effective. So it's, it's a different story than this one, but um, it is a lesson in um, how how infectious agents can spread. Uh, uh, leprosy is caused by um, uh, mycobacterium, which is a type of bacteria. Uh, I believe it's mycobacterium leprae, I think. I, I'm going to have to remember that one. I don't see that one very often. Uh, but it is uh, it, this one, the coronavirus is indeed a virus, and uh, leprosy is caused by a bacterium. So they are different. But it, they, it does give us lessons on how, um, how um, pathogens are passed between people. It is interesting, you know, we talk about did we get this from animals and this, that, and the other thing? Um, the, an organism that passes, a bacterium or a virus, um, is called zoonotic, Z-O-O, zoonotic for obvious reasons, zoology, when it can pass from an animal to a person. And many viruses can do that, although many cannot. So we have just so much more to learn about coronavirus. Um, we're kind of we're kind of in the dark about it for now, but we'll know a lot more about how this thing's passed in the future, I'm sure. Before we uh, get to the phones, Doctor, we have a bunch of text messages, but we're getting a lot of suggestions uh, about how to clean your mask again. Uh, someone told me, Texter says, to clean the mask with a steam iron, inside first, then outside, then fold. <laughs> There's well, another you know, suggestion. That could do it. Heat definitely kills this thing. It's kind of funny, you know, this horrendous, horrendous virus, worst thing we've seen in our lifetimes, is frankly not that. It's kind of a wussy virus when you, when you think about it. Um, it. It doesn't live that long out in the community. It requires a human host. It probably does live a day or two or who knows how long on hard surfaces like plastics and metal. It probably does not live all that long on cloth things in human hands. The porous things doesn't seem to do as well. Um, and it, it, it does seem to be quite readily uh, treat or killed by soap and water, hot water, laundry, um, UV lights, the things we've talked about. So 
hot steam probably kills it too. Uh, it, it, we don't have proof of that, but it it sure makes some sense. All right, six five one nine eight nine nine two two six is the phone number. It's also the text number. Let's go back to the phones, Doctor Marcia, calling from St. Paul, I believe. Marcia, you're on CCO. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. Quick question. Is it known why this cough is dry as opposed to the wet cough you get with pneumonia or other things where you can actually clear the illness out of your lungs? Marcia, I love it because, you know, we're not because that's the kind of stuff that we're just pondering all the time. This one um, the coronavirus, and I'm starting to get a little better sense about this one because you know, this past week I was working in the hospital. I was working on the night shift, and I was in the room with people with coronavirus, I, with patients who had it. And, and, and we're all learning as doctors about what's different about this one. And I was starting to see some patterns um, with my patients who had coronavirus. And, of course, I'm all masked up. I had a, I had a mask up and a face shield and a gown, and a, so I was protected. But they have, they seem to breathe reasonably well until they don't. And and so my patients who had COVID, I was talking to them um, through my mask and they were doing okay. And they did have a bit of a cough, but they weren't bringing up all the junk like Marsha, like you're talking about. So what is happening in pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, is that a, a bacteria sets up shop in your lungs and your lungs... Um, uh, send white blood cells and um, fluid to the area and and try to attack it and wall it off, and then that turns into that gook and that gunk and mucus that you cough up. In coronavirus, it appears to be more diffuse, often in the bases of your lungs, the bottoms, where it's not it's not leading to this massive fluid overload situation, but rather it's sort of attacking the, the, the lung tissue itself down low. Um, the chest x-rays seem to be kind of consistent with that, too. And so that, that it, it's more of a diffuse response, primarily in the bases of your lungs, which doesn't lead to that massive fluid and pus buildup. And therefore, the cough seems to not be quite so wet. And it also, people seem to be, they look fine, they're talking to you, and then six hours later, they're on a ventilator. So it, it definitely has a different look to it than pneumonia. Uh, I think we'll learn much more about that in the future. Um, well, I know we will. But for now, it does appear to be, as you've said, Marcia, it does have a diff- little different cough than does um, pneumonia. And we'll have to break here in a minute. Uh, I want to uh, get a text because we have so many. Uh, this one says, I'm a 70-year-old woman. I'm on 20 milligrams of lisinopril, and uh, she uh, states the uh, diuretic uh, daily for blood pressure control. At what point, she wants to know, is my pressure too low? What are the symptoms? Yeah, blood pressure, you know, we always talk about you don't want it to be too high. Um, But too low isn't good either, particularly in older adults. So uh, if your blood pressure is is causing you symptoms of dizziness or lightheadedness or you're getting woozy when you stand up, it could be that it's too low. Uh, uh, You should be talking to your doctor about that. You want it less than 140 over 90. Preferably, you'd like your blood pressure less than 130 over 80. I love it if your blood pressure were 120 over 70. So lower is almost always better. But if it's 90 over 50, that's going to be too low for you, and you're going to get lightheaded. I can't give you the absolute number of what is too low, 
but certainly there is a point, and it's probably when it's getting below 100. Um, certainly, if it's at 90, you're going to get some symptoms. So check your blood pressure either at home or have it at your doctor's office. And an occasional low blood pressure might not be too bad, but if it's routinely um, below 100, I would you're probably getting too much of your medication, and then they could maybe just cut down on the dose. That might be something worth calling your doctor's office, whether it be by phone or by video, um, and ask them if you need to come in to have that checked out. It's probably not an emergency, but something I would I would look into. Very good. Well, let's take this a quick break, reminding our listeners, if you have a question, general health question, 651-989-9226. Same number applies to your text or your phone call, 651-989-9226. Healthy Matters returns. In just a moment here on News Talk 830 WCCO, 39 degrees. We are heading for 50 later today. Stay with us. And welcome back to Healthy Matters. It's an open line show today. If you have a question for Dr. Hilden, call us or send a text. Same number, 651-989-9226. Dr. Hilden, we do have callers and a bunch of texts have questions as well. Let's go back to the phones. I believe Brian is waiting in Minneapolis. Brian, thank you for waiting. What's your question? Um, earlier reports said that there were countries were going to intentionally infect some of their healthiest people and protect their vulnerable. Do we know any results? Hi, Brian. That's an interesting question. That's called um, getting to herd immunity um, quicker. And uh, her, herd immunity is simply the idea that when, when enough people in the population have been in, uh, exposed to a pathogen like this virus, then the virus fizzles out. And that is a fact of any kind of pathogen. If if 95% of the population is immune to a virus, the thing can't survive, or at least not very well. That's why vaccines work. That's why you don't see measles, because we have herd immunity on the planet. Most of us are immune to it, so the darn thing can't pass around. And that's why when when you get a measles outbreak, it's generally in a group of unvaccinated people. Or they don't have herd immunity, and it's with catastrophic um, results. In coronavirus, there is no herd immunity because nobody's been exposed to it. I am con- I'm confident there's that room for optimism. One day, there will be enough herd immunity in the planet, and coronavirus, although it won't go away, will be a lesser deal. But we're years away from that. The idea that you might expose a whole population to the virus quickly in order to get to that level of herd immunity more quickly, that has been floated in various places. I think the the U.K. was going to do that. They were going to expose the entirety of Great Britain to this thing, just let it go, get rid of stay-at-home orders and let it go and, and get to that point quicker. It, it, that would be, as, as appealing as that sounds, that would be catastrophic because if we were just to let people go around and get this thing, the vast majority would, would get better. That is true, but tens of thousands would die of it. And so the price of getting to herd immunity more quickly is massive death, and, and it's just a trade-off we could not make. And so we can't cheat nature. We can't we can't go out and be with each other and just pass it to each other. Those who are having coronavirus intentional in exposures are being reckless and, and frankly, endangering lives. So it, it's not a method that any reputable people that I know of would, would encourage. Um, it would work in the end. Eventually, the population would have herd immunity, but the number of the tens of hundreds of thousands of people that would have to lose their life to get there 
would be um, unacceptable. So most people I know aren't, aren't aren't considering that route any longer. Maybe some right. countries still are, but I know Great Britain, they dropped that idea quickly because they, they realized how silly it was. All right, let's see. We have so many texts, and we'll go back to the phones in a moment. Here's a text. It does not say male or female, but 69 years old, had a heart attack 25 years ago. Tester says, am I considered compromised? You know, it's hard to know. I don't know the specifics about this one, but probably not. Uh, unless this person is having long-term complications like heart failure, ongoing day-to-day complications, uh, they're probably not at high risk if you had a heart attack 25 years ago. Or even if you had a heart attack six months ago um, and you're doing okay, your risk is probably not as high as you might think. You're at higher risk, but maybe not that much higher. If you simply had a heart attack and you got over it, uh, you're probably okay. Uh it, it's more, do you have any current medical problems that are causing you, are you, are you, do you have heart failure, for instance, that would, that would put you at higher risk. All right, let's go back to the phones. I believe Gino is calling in from White Bear Lake with a question. Gino, go ahead, please. Oh, Gino's gone. All right, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, we have an open line if you want to fill it and talk to Dr. Hilden. Otherwise, we have plenty of text messages, and if you want to send a text, 651-989-9226. See if I can figure this one out here. I uh, recently read that asymptomatic people who are infected may be a major spreader of the virus. I also read that before serious symptoms appear, uh, the uh, infection, it kind of ends up there. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, well, I can address the about, Oh, the infected, here it is. The infected person, it goes about six paragraphs here. The infected person loses their sense of smell and taste. Would there be any value in having a person who is to be tested be tested for loss of scent by smelling like peanut butter when tested for the virus? See if infection correlates with the measured loss of scent. What do you think of that theory? Both of those things are, are legit. Uh, they're legitimate ideas. There is a lot of anecdotal evidence, just reports from people, that they lost their sense of smell and taste. And I think that that is becoming so widespread that it's a real thing. Uh, we, uh, as a screening method, it, 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 we can't use it on its own. It's not the sole thing. But if you had some illness and a, a fever and a cough and you also lost your sense of smell for a little while, that is supportive of that you maybe have this thing, this coronavirus. Uh, all by itself, we just don't know the significance of it, but it's it's definitely something that is, as part of a screening questions. We go into the hospital every day and we have to answer whether or not we have symptoms to the screeners at the door. And loss of sense of smell or taste is just one of many things. So um, we don't actually test it, I mean, by waving the smelly thing in front of people. But it is something to consider, at least. Um, and then I think there was a first part of that one, Denny, that text question. And now I'm, I'm blanking. It's early on a Sunday and I'm blanking about what the first part of the question was. About the asymptomatic people who are infected oh, yeah. may be a major spreader. Yeah, thank you. That's for real. Uh, uh, we've always known that asymptomatic spread is probable for this. We've known that for some months. But now there, there's even, in the last month or so, it's been even stronger that it could be a great number of the spread of this is in asymptomatic people. And I'm going to go on a soapbox. This is why we don't go congregate in Minnesota in groups. 
you do not do that. That is, you are, if you are congregating, if you are standing on a street, even if it's for reasons that you feel strongly about, if you are standing on a street, if you are being close to other Minnesotans, you are contributing to the spread. It's just not, there's no two ways about that. Because it is spread from people who feel well. You are exposing two, three, four, or five people, and if you do the math, people who are congregating in groups are spreading it because so much of this is probably spread by asymptomatic carriers. So it is if you feel well and you're willing to take the risk by being with another person, frankly, as a medical professional, I don't care. You are spreading it to other people and who don't have the option. And so uh, uh, it's reckless to, to, um, to be near other people at this time um, because of that asymptomatic spread. That's my being on my soapbox a little bit. Very good. Uh, let's grab a phone call. Jean is calling in from Andover, I believe. Jean, you're on with Dr. Hilden. Hi, good morning. Uh, this is a different uh, subject. I have neuropathy. Neuropathy? I can't pronounce it. And uh, I just took a fall, and I cracked a couple ribs, which is not real serious. But I'm dizzy, uh, and I, I think I was dizzy before, too. So I don't know what's going on. What? Uh, thank you for calling. Um, uh, it's a little concerning to me, um, and I'm hopeful that maybe you could seek out some attention for that. At least call your clinic and ask them if, and talk to them by phone or by video or somehow and, and get their, their thoughts. Um, if you're, your neuropathy, and for other listeners, that's when you don't have sensation in some of your nerves, and so you can lose your balance from the neuropathy. But you can also have other reasons for losing your balance. It could be something in your brain. It could be that your blood pressure was too low. It could be, uh, it could be, um, oh, a heart thing. And and so I and if you fall, that is bad enough to break something like ribs. And I actually love your your comment. You said, oh, that's not too big a thing. That's a that's a that's a person who's uh, not a complainer. You broke a couple of ribs, and you said it's not too big a thing. And so that 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 makes me smile. But if it, your fall is bad enough to break a bone, that's significant, and it could happen again. Next time, it might not be a rib; it might be your hip, and that's what we want to avoid. So I would suggest calling if you could. Doesn't have to be right the second, but call this week your clinic and say, "Hey, you're taking some tumbles. Is my neuropathy getting worse? Is there something else I should be looking at?" Because I think that would be something worth looking into a little bit more, even Very in good. the era of coronavirus. That you should you should be seen. I think. Just a reminder, Doctor Hilden, to our listeners, we have another half hour of the show to go. So if you did not get in the first uh, segment, call us or text us. That number six five one nine eight nine. 9226. We'll be back in just a moment here with Healthy Matters and News Talk 830 WCCO. And good morning. Welcome back to this portion of Healthy Matters. If you have a question for Dr. Hilden, it doesn't have to be about the virus. It can be about anything. We do have uh, Dr. Hilden some other text messages that have uh, other topics in mind. But we do have a bunch of callers as well. Let's see if we can help uh, those folks out. Let's see who's with. Catherine is calling from uh, Blaine, I believe. Catherine, you're on with the doctor. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Hilden and Denny. Um, I am. I have a question. When this virus starts, uh, is there um, an indication? Do you have a fever right away? Um, how? I I don't know if I've ever heard exactly how people um, 
you know, are affected by it. What's the first sign? Yeah, thanks for calling, Catherine. I hope all is well with you and Blaine. Um, we're not exactly sure the precise order of events because they're just, you know, it's so new to us in the medical field. But but the general the general feel of it is that the, you have this thing for a few days and you don't even know it. So there's that, that pre-symptomatic phase where the thing is just growing in your lungs. And then people start, many people are starting to feel uh, just a malaise. Maybe a little sore throat, a malaise and a fatigue, and I just don't feel right, a little body aches, and then a cough and a fever develop. It's not always that way. Some people might have diarrhea or a headache, but those are not the prominent ways. The prominent thing is this asymptomatic phase, a little malaise and fatigue and body aches, followed by a cough and a fever. Once you have a fever you've got it. Then you're really in the symptomatic phase. And it seems to be quite common that people get the fever and a cough and a body ache. It could be in a different order. Maybe the fever is the first thing you noticed, but those three things are very common, fever, cough, and body ache. Um, but it is really important to know that you might have had it for a few days before that where you really don't have any symptoms at all. We were talking earlier in the show, Doctor, about the exercise, and here's a text that says, when fitness centers open up in the near future, what are the risks working out at one of these facilities? Yeah, it does kind of bring up a lot of kind of ishy kind of thoughts about, you know, everybody's on a treadmill two feet from each other. And I think that when we do open fitness centers, it's going to have to be with some real social distancing. You can't be in a treadmill next to somebody else or behind somebody because people are breathing out. And not only are they just breathing out a little, they're breathing out a lot. They're huffing and puffing and, 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 and we do know that the virus is spread through your droplets from your mouth. So I wouldn't go anywhere near anybody on a treadmill. I would, but it could be okay if you're four treadmills away. Uh, and so the main way people are getting it is from droplets, but you can also get it from surfaces. So if somebody is on a treadmill or, or using gym equipment and they're breathing and they're touching the barbell or the treadmill, Clearly, it's going to be on those. So this would not be. This would be a relatively good way to get coronavirus. So I think what we're going to have. I don't want to discourage people from exercising. So when we do slowly start open up gyms, we're going to have to make sure that we're just diligent, like we've never been diligent to uh, cleaning off those equipment, staying away from others who are working out. I think it's possible to do it safely, slowly, slowly, slowly. But we're just going to have to take some extreme precautions. In that, in that kind of area. That would be a great way to get the virus, to be honest. All right, let's uh, go back to the phones. I think Dick is calling in from Fergus Falls, Minnesota, this morning. Dick, you're on with Dr. Hilden. Uh, good morning. Uh, question about what metric or statistic will tell us when we've turned the corner on this. Is it uh, the number of cases? Is it uh, reducing deaths? What, how do we know when that time will will be that we're getting beyond this that's a that is the million dollar question and i love that question dick uh, i hope all is well up to all the good folks up in fergus falls uh there are several clearly we have to have a plateau and a and a dropping in the number of new cases so if we are still seeing larger amounts of new cases we're not there and indeed in minnesota we're still on the climb 
for the last four days, for the first time, in the last four days, we've had more than 100 new cases every single day. That's the worst week in Minnesota we've yet had. We're still heading for it. It's not there yet. So the new cases over at least a week or two have to be dropping. That's one really good metric. Um, the death rate follows cases by several weeks later. So we, so I think the new cases one might be a better way to, to go. We also have to, so that's criteria one, a drop in the cases. Number two, we have to see an increase in the testing capability. We're well away from that yet. We have to be able to do thousands and thousands of tests every day because what we need to do is go from a, uh, we need to go to a, a, a contact tracing, sort of an investigative mode, where we test people and those who are positive, we can test all of their contacts. And once those numbers, we can do, in other words, surveillance. We need to do surveillance of the population by testing, not just testing people who show up on our doorstep with a fever. We need to do surveillance of large numbers of people. Once we have that testing capability in place, then we will be able to say, wow, it's dropping in the whole population. Um, and then we need to be able to have hospital capacity. In Minnesota, we are fortunate. We've nailed this, everybody. We are so, I'm so thankful for our healthcare system in Minnesota. We have hospital capability in Minnesota. There is such great room for optimism about our hospital capability. I, I just, that's the thing I'm so proud of. So, so that part we've got in Minnesota. So fewer number of cases sustained over a few weeks a much expanded testing capability and hospital capacity are, are kind of the three biggest things I think we're looking at. It's a great question, and it's what our leaders and our public health experts are thinking about all the time. The thing we're farthest away from is testing. We, we just don't have enough testing yet to know. All right, 651-989-9226 is the phone number. It's also the text number. Let's uh, go back to the phones, Dr. Jim. I believe he's calling from Brooklyn Center. Jim, you're on uh, CCO. Good morning. Hi, guys. Uh, I got a quick question uh, uh, pertaining to organ transplant recipients. Uh, some of us are a few years out. Uh, should we be contacting our people and asking them if we should be uh, tested for the coronavirus automatically? Thanks. In an ideal situation, the answer is yes. I would love to see people who are immunocompromised, including transplant recipients, getting a test. I'm hopeful, Jim, that we're close to that. It might be time. We might be getting close enough that your healthcare system is able to test you even without symptoms. Clearly, if you get a symptom or you've been in contact with someone with the virus, or, or then you should be tested. You are high risk, a transplant recipient, you should get it tested. And we would do that now. If you showed up in our testing clinic, we would do that now. Um, but better yet would be just to have everybody who's immunocompromised like you get get testing done. And so we're we're almost to that point. As Governor Wallace has said, we need to increase the testing dramatically. He threw down the challenge to our testing community in our hospitals, test more people. And we're ramping it up. I know at Hennepin Healthcare, we're doing our tests in our own hospital. We're one of the, the hospitals that's doing that, and we, we have capacity. Mayo has capacity. Um, and so more and more people need to get tested. And as soon as it becomes widely available, you, Jim, should get a test. Whether we're quite there yet, I'm not sure. But if I were you, I would call your, your transplant center and say, is it time? I think it's a, that'd be a good idea. 
Dr. Hill, and here's a text that's away from the virus, uh, but it, again, we're open to any particular general health question for the doctor. Uh, here is what it says. I just got another case of gout. What caused it, and what can you tell me about it and prevention? Yeah, gout, yeah I like this. It's kind of a bookend question. Coronavirus is a virus that was discovered in 2019, and gout is a, a thing that was discovered in like 1519, 500 years ago. Um uh, and gout is a crystal disease that happens in your bloodstream, and then these little crystals form in your joints, usually, where they cause extreme pain. And it's a byproduct of the digestion of food. And if someone is getting one gout episode every five years, then we would just treat it when it happens. You know, we'd give you medications, anti-inflammatory medications. But if you're getting recurrent episodes of gout, not just once every five years, but you're getting them once a month or once a week or even once every few months, then there are medications to make it, to to prevent it. And you take a daily medication to prevent it. So if you're getting more recurrent episodes, things you can do is you can take anti-inflammatories. You can drink more fluids to flush out those crystals. You can monitor your diet on a gout-friendly diet. Um, and then you can, I would call your rheumatologist or your primary care doctor to see if there's any further medications you should be taking. Dr. Hillen, the texter wants to know, we talk about uh, temperatures that uh, may kill the virus. My understanding, texter says, is that freezing preserves it. Is that correct, you think? And what high heat temperature kills it? Yeah, I don't know about the freezing story because a lot of things, that's all it does. A, a freezing might make something just dormant. And then that might not be. So I don't know if anybody knows. I certainly don't. But I don't know if we really know about the freezing story. Um, certainly boiling something would kill it and probably even temperature somewhat less than boiling. So if you are cooking food, you're good to go. Or if you're boiling something, you're good. The thing is is killed by that for sure. I would not rely on freezing because I, because I just don't think we know yet. But I'm going to acknowledge I'm I'm relatively uninformed about that. So those are just kind of general principles. I would rec- I would rely on heat. I would not rely on freezing at least yet. All right. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Tom is calling in from Lake Elmo this morning. Thank you, Tom. What's your question? Uh, hello, doctor. My question is: We are reading stories of like the uh, GE uh, plant in North Dakota being closed for two weeks to uh, sanitize and clean the plant. But we are also hearing that the, that the virus only lives on surfaces for maybe up to three days on certain kinds of surfaces. So why are people cleaning so thoroughly and, 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 and for such a long period of time? It would seem after three or four days, the virus would be dead. I hadn't thought about it that way, Tom, but you make a lot of sense. Um, as do all of our listeners. You guys always make great sense. I think it's probably more of an abundance of caution situation. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with what Tom's talking about, is there was a plant up in the Grand Forks, East Grand Forks area, that uh, that that got had a, a significant outbreak. Um, I, I think it's probably just a thorough abundance of caution situation, and that if you brought somebody in. A little bit too early, and some certain, you know, on some 
hard surfaces like metal, it could last even longer. We just don't know. We think it's probably a few days, but it could well last on metal surfaces, and I would imagine plants have a lot of metal, um, for longer than three days, a week. Who knows? We just don't know. And then those workers come back in, and they touch it, and we're back into a cycle all over again. So I think it's an abundance of caution. It also, keeping people out of a plant for two weeks is an effective way to simply break the cycle. And so if if you go back too soon, I think it's highly likely that it, the cycle would just resume again. So it's for deep cleaning, but it's also breaking the cycle. Keep everybody out for two weeks. It brings up the, the very legitimate point about the economic effects of this. If doctors like me and public health people don't acknowledge that, we're not being honest. We have to acknowledge that it's huge economic impact. It's supply chains of our food that are at risk, and it's people's livelihoods. I think that is really important to acknowledge. Um, so we want to do this as smart as we can. And I think the long-term economic damage of keeping that plant closed for two weeks is probably less than the long-term economic damage if they came back too soon and it just started up again. But again, that's not my area of expertise. But Tom, your points are good ones. We, that's the kind of nuanced conversation that we should be thinking of. All right. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. We need to take a bit of a break here. We have more show to come. 651-989-9226 is our phone number and text number for that matter. We'll be back with more Healthy Matters in a moment here on News Talk A3OWCCO. Temperature reading uh, 39, heading for 50. Stay with us. And good morning. Welcome back to this portion of uh, Healthy Matters. 651-989-9226 is the number. Well, Dr. Hilden, we have a bunch of calls and, and text messages as well. I know we're not going to get to them this week. We'll be back again next week, though. Uh, let's uh, grab a couple of phone calls anyway. Dan, I believe, is calling from Roseville this morning. Dan, uh, the doctor's listening. Hello. Um, I am wondering if a person is brought in with, you know, the virus, what are the treatments before they get put on a ventilator? Because it kind of sounds like you go into the hospital and you're put on a ventilator right away. And I'm just wondering what happens in between. That's a great question. And, and um, we're all learning as we go. But this past week when I was caring for patients with COVID, uh, we're asking ourselves the exact same questions. What, what do we have in our quiver? What arrows do we have? And you'd be kind of surprised on what we do. We, we, we write in the chart, diagnosis, COVID-19 infection, plan, supportive cares. Supportive cares is not a great, uh, it's not a great intervention. What that means is we give oxygen. We put you on your belly sometimes because um, it's thought to be on your front is better than on your back, although it's not clear, but we sometimes try that. We definitely give you oxygen. And we monitor your symptoms to see if they're getting worse. And if they do, that's when you end up going on a ventilator. Um, but no, uh, most patients in the hospital are not on ventilators. They're in hospital rooms in some isolation where we do what's called supportive cares. In some cases, in some cases, we are trying the medications hydroxychloroquine. Um, and we have people on clinical trials on a medication called remdesivir. Some patients are trying Losartan. None of these are proven to work, none of them. Um, but some of them, the, the benefit of trying it is better than doing nothing. So we are trying some of those medications just as a, as a method of, of um, it seems to be the right idea. But mostly you get the supportive cares. 
where we just do our best to give you oxygen and to support you until such time as you get better, which most do, or when you get worse, in which case you go to a ventilator. We were talking about elective surgery earlier this morning. Texter says this, doctor, who makes the decision at the hospital if a scheduled surgery is non-essential? My son, that says, was diagnosed in February with melanoma, scheduled for surgery in March, and then was canceled, saying it was not essential. Isn't there, Texter says, a fear of melanoma going to the lymph nodes if not stopped? Yes, that Texter is correct. That's the whole gray area of how essential is essential. Some things are emergent, and we do it now no matter what. Some things are truly elective, and we can put it off a great long time. And then there's that middle zone of where it's, it's important and essential, but how quickly. I would say a melanoma diagnosis falls into that category, but is not one you would wait a great long time. So the decision is who, who or the question, who makes the decision? You, well, it, for a few weeks, nobody was getting those surgeries. But those few weeks are just about over. And it's now time to start having that conversation with your doctor. Is it time for my surgery? And it may well be that in the next few weeks, that person for melanoma would be in that category. It's time. Uh, I, would, I can't speak specifically. This might be a really minor thing or it might be a, a, a bigger deal, but that would be the conversation that you need to start having with your doctor. Is it time now to do it? All right. Uh, we have, oh boy, so many text messages. Maybe this is one for uh, your colleague, Dr. John Sweet. It says, hi, doctor. Can seasonal allergies trigger uh, trigeminal neuralgia-like symptoms in the face? This week, Texter says, I had horrendous electrifying pain in the right side of the face from teeth to eyes. It subsided with prednisone. Now I just get some minor jolts in the teeth. It's possible. Allergies can trigger all kinds of things because they can trigger an inflammatory response. And, and um, sometimes it's a, a viral infection, not coronavirus, but a, just a other viral infection. Sometimes it can be allergies. It is certainly possible. And I think that's a great question to in a non-emergent fashion. But call your allergist or your primary doctor and, see, and, and throw that question out to them because maybe um, better treatment of your allergies might be a helpful thing in that case. We have less than a minute, Dr. Hill, and maybe we could go over those websites again that you mentioned earlier in the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Denny. Um, uh, if you want to follow my doctor's diary, just my random musings about what it's like caring for people and things about the hospital and, and, and all that, go to the blog site. It's myhealthymatters.org. One word, myhealthymatters.org. You can subscribe by email if you wish um, and just kind of get my musings um, from a relatively unedited uh, stream of consciousness um, style. The second website right. is hennepinhealthcare.org. Um, go to that and, uh, and uh, you can learn how to donate. Very good. Well, let's do this again next week. Thanks, Dr. Hilden. Stay with us here on News Talk 830 WCCO. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.